want to thank our sound team for getting that thing together for me. It was, uh, it was uh, heroic work this morning. Thanks, fellows. I appreciate you. This morning, we're going to be studying Psalms, a, uh, a psalm from the cluster in the Bible called the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent. And there are 15 of these psalms in the psalms. They range from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And if you look in your Bible, you'll notice that all of them share a common inscription at the very top, a song of ascents. And that word ascents here is a word that means steps or, or going up. Ten of these psalms are, are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. Four of them are attributed to King David. Psalm 122, Psalm 124, Psalm 131, Psalm 133. And believe it or not, one of these psalms is attributed to Solomon. King Solomon, that's 127. Now, one of the reasons that they're called the Psalms of Ascent Church is because they're songs that were sung by Jews who were traveling to Jerusalem for three annual feasts every year. There were three main feasts in Jerusalem each year. The Feast of the Passover in the spring, the Feast of the Pentecost in the summer, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place at the harvest time in the fall. And Yom Kippur, also known as the Day of Atonement, and Rosh Hashanah, also known as the Feast of Trumpets, or the Jewish New Year, both took place five or ten days before the fall festival. And so some people would travel early to celebrate these as well. If you want to find those in the Scriptures, take a look in Exodus chapter 3 and Deuteronomy and around Deuteronomy 16. You'll see them laid out for us. Now, of course, the big one of these feasts, church, was the Passover. The whole family would come for Passover, kind of like Easter Sunday. You know, when you get the family together for Passover. Now, the thing that we have to think about is all of them came for Passover while only the men were required to go up for the two other feasts. Now, here's the cool thing. Jesus, Jesus would have sung these songs with his family as they made their way to Jerusalem each year for the Passover. Can you picture Jesus singing Psalm 121? I mean, I, I can just, I can hear his young voice singing that out. And we read in Luke uh, 2, 41 and 42, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Scripture tells us that. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. If you remember correctly, that was the year that Jesus got lost. That's a funny picture, isn't it? Jesus lost. And really, Jesus came back to his parents and said, I wasn't lost. I was in my father's house. I knew where I was. You know, you lost track of me. That might be a parenting issue. What do you think? You know, I mean, we think about it, though, when they were traveling, think about this travel that they're making to Jerusalem for this festival. We're not talking about four or five hundred people here. I mean, we're talking about thousands, if you millions, really. I mean, if you look at it, you've got 200, 300, 400,000 people going up for this festival and Jesus is nowhere amongst them. And it said even in the text that she looked for almost a day. And sure enough, he was missing. But just, just imagine this, this long string of people heading to, the, to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is located at about 2,800 feet. So here's the thing I want you to know. No matter what direction you approach the city, you're always going up to Jerusalem. So these are called the Psalms of Ascents. First of all, because they are sung by the people literally going up to Jerusalem. But they are also called the Psalms of Ascent because the Psalms themselves, church, have an upward motion. They begin with the believer crying out to God in trouble far away from Jerusalem. And they end with believers offering up praise to God in His temple courts. Psalm 134. And so these are travel songs. This is what we got here. They're full of beautiful imagery, meaningful expression, and divine wisdom for this journey that they're on. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone on a road trip? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay, we've all gone on road trips. Have you ever put together a playlist? Yeah, I never knew about that, right? I mean, the, the first time I knew about a playlist is I went to Minnesota with my son, Michael, and he, and he hooked up his playlist. You know, the only thing about Michael's playlist, though, is they got music, and then you got to listen to these preachers, too. You know, you know, you know how all music, I mean, I'm listening to Alistair Begg, and I'm listening to, you know, but so what you've got here is, is a travel mix for the journey. Did I do okay, Crystal? Travel mix. Work? Okay. 
And this is what the Psalm of Ascents are. They're short, they're easy to memorize, and they're meant to be sung in praise and worship to God. God's people have always been a singing people, amen? I mean, we just started with song, didn't we? I don't know about you, but I mean, we could have quit at the end of the songs today. I was, I was almost like halfway full there already. You know, I thank you, worship team, for leading us to the throne of grace. I really do. But God's people were singing people and are worshiping people. And God gave us these psalms to help, help us give expression to the feelings in our heart as we worship Him in prayer and song. You know, I specifically asked Chris for Through It All. It's an old Andre Crouch tune. It, it was actually put together back in the 90s. But it's a great song, and it's one that means a great deal to my spirit, and I thought you might enjoy it too. You know, Jerusalem in the Bible represents church, the city of God. It's the place of the temple. It's the place where God chose to dwell, to meet with His people. And as we read the Psalm of Ascent today, it holds great meaning for us as well. Because, because listen, as Christians, we are also on a journey. Not a literal journey to Jerusalem, of course, that's not what we're on, but rather a spiritual journey, a pilgrimage of the heart, if you will. You know, we read in Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My, my heart, my flesh cry out for the living God. Listen to me, church, this is what you were made for. This is what you've been looking for all of your life. This is what you truly desire in your heart of hearts. To meet with God and know the beauty of His presence. As we work our way through this psalm and all that it teaches us about our relationship with God, I want you to see that this psalm of ascent really does serve as a stepping stone along the way. This psalm is a stepping stone to God's heart. And listen, so we don't want to just study it. We, we want to learn from it. And then pray it back to God as He intended. Hear the word of the Lord. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this day forth and forevermore. Selah and amen. Father God, we come before you and as we get into your psalm, Psalm 121, the song of ascents, Father, help our spirits just to, to worship you to seek you, to know you, to love you this morning, God. Help us to know, Father God, in our heart of hearts that we do not praise you because you bless us. We do not praise you because you've just given us salvation. We do not praise you because we have a roof over our head. We do not praise you because we can pay our bills. Father, we praise you because you deserve it. God, you are worthy of our praise, of our worship, of our songs, of our obedience. God, may this be a sweet offering you, to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's, it's easy as we look at this psalm. Some have looked at this and, and they see it as an antiphonal hymn. Uh, in other words, it's sung back and forth. You know, when I was a, a choir student or a student at Judson, I sang in a choir, and we used to do an antiphonal song, and it was so cool because half the choir would be in front of the congregation, and the rest of the choir would have gone up into the loft if they had a loft, 
and the front of the choir would sing and the back of the choir would echo it back to them. If you've been in a, some of these sagging large sanctuaries, the sound is incredible. So some have thought that this was sort of antiphonal. The, the worship leader is, is laying it out for the, for the people and the people are oh, echoing it back to him. Others believe, and I tend to lean this way, that what we discover is an internal dialogue here within a person's soul. And if you go back and look at Psalm 42 and 43 later today, I think you'll pick up what I'm talking about, this soul talk that's going on. Pastor Michael talked about it last week. He said, when are we going to stop listening to all of the noise around us and start talking to ourselves about the things of God, filling ourselves with the things of God? So like a traveling family reunion, God's people would sing these songs together, helping them focus on the Lord and all, all the things that he had done for them. That's kind of how Chris sets us up in the morning too, sets our focus on the Lord. But this raises a question for me. Why did God require them to make these long, difficult pilgrimages each year? Maybe it's just me. You know, I relish the insides of a wonderful expositor called Warren Wiersbe. If you've never read him, I'd suggest you pick up something by Warren Wiersbe. He's not a moody. But, am I right? Yeah. Under the leadership of Moses, the Israelites were a nomadic people for 40 years, Wiersbe writes. But after they settled in Canaan, the Lord required them to go to Jerusalem three times a year. And this reminded them that, spiritually speaking, they were still a pilgrim people and needed to depend on the Lord. King David laid it out in 1 Chronicles 29 and 15 when he said, For we are aliens and pilgrims before you. Now listen, church, too many believers today want to be settlers and not pilgrims. I hope nobody here is like that. You know what? It's interesting because the Scripture really doesn't lead us to believe anything other than that. Hebrews, Hebrews 8, uh, 11, 8 through 10 says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? Because he was looking toward, forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. The New Testament goes on in, in Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. It says, these all died in faith. Our brother read it to us a few minutes ago. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Even Peter picks up on it. Peter's writing to the church. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. Also in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you, listen, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul." You see, the New Testament doesn't leave us out. We're still sojourning. But so many of us are happy to settle down in our comfort zones and live as though Jesus never died. As though Jesus is not coming again. And our lives will never end. You know, I think some of us are guilty of what Eugene Peterson calls the tourist mindset. I love this, the tourist mindset, church. Content to make occasional visits with the Lord that are leisurely and entertaining, all the while conforming to this world and enjoying it. I don't know about you, but that was convicting to me. Our citizenship, church, is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Our citizenship is heaven. And, and the thing is, that should make a difference in our lives on earth. We need to feel temporary, church, as we make a pilgrim journey called life. Listen, brothers and sisters, it's tough. It's tough. 
I know it is. I think you all would agree we need help at times. The Beatles used to sing a song. Church, I, you know, when I was in preaching class, they said to know your audience, but I'm sorry, I got to throw this one out. The Beatles used to sing a song. I get by with a little help from my friends. You remember that one? And what about that commercial for the Lifeline products? You remember that one? It's got this tagline, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. Listen, where do you go when you need help? Where do you go when you need help? Do you call on family? Do you call on friends? Do you dial 911? Do you grab a drink? Do you take a pill? Listen, believers, man, it's good to have a support system in place. But we need to look further than that. Because history and experience, and listen, I'm standing here with a little bit of history and a little bit of experience. And it teaches us that no safety plan, no insurance policy, no security system, my, my wife said, amen, can keep you absolutely safe in this life. I said that because I put all these security things in my house and she doesn't like them. <laughs> Sorry, dear, I love you. But listen, you can follow all the safety rules. You can take every precaution. You can exercise. You can eat weight. And things still go wrong. And that's why we need to look to God for our help. You know, last week I was messing with Michael. But listen, it was Ben Franklin who stole the quote from Euripides who said, God helps those who help themselves. I can't tell you how many Christians have quoted that to me. You know, I made fun of him, right? I said first opinions, one and two. But listen, in the Scriptures, the Scriptures teach us, listen to me, the Scriptures teach us that God helps those who seek His help. God helps those who seek His help. None of us are safe until we take refuge in God. I'm not safe. You're not safe until we take refuge in our God. Psalm 121 is the psalm about trusting God's providential care. It's a travel psalm. In fact, listen, many families read this psalm out loud together before going on a trip. I know some brothers and sisters who do that. But listen, Orthodox Jews recite portions of this psalm when they leave and enter their homes. You know, my, my parents bought a home in Florida when we, when we were down there. And there was a, a little thingy on the side of the door on the mantle. And I said to my dad, what is that? He didn't know what that was. But the lady of the house was so kind, she walked out and she said, that's a mezuzah. It's a mezuzah. And we, got, we have scriptures in there, child. She was so kind. She said, it's, it comes out of Deuteronomy 6, 4, 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. And it also goes on and talks about training up your children when you rise up. When you sit down, when you walk by the way. And whenever they leave and whenever they entered that home, they would touch this mezuzah and recite Psalm 21, verses 5 and 8. Remember what that was? Too long. Whoa, uh, the Lord is your helper. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The Lord will keep your going in and your coming back now and forevermore. Let me ask you a question. Do you need help this morning? Do you need help this morning? This psalm is for you. This psalm is a good one to memorize and have handy for the journey of life. Psalm 21 teaches us four truths that knit our, our text together into a marvelous tapestry concerning this God who is our help. Look at verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? The hills, it's an interesting picture. Looking up to the hills. You know, as they're walking on this journey, this huge crowd of people, they're looking up to the hills. And there's a couple of ways of looking at these hills, right? It's, a, it's the idea that these hills are a safe haven for robbers, and petty ter terrorists. You got to realize that 
everybody knew that these folks were going to be going to Jerusalem for these feasts three times a year. Now, if you're going to rob somebody and you know when they're going to go, what a perfect time. So they had some concern, but they're still looking up at these hills because they're scary. But the other part of looking up to these hills is that they pointed to and led to Jerusalem, the place of God, the house of God, the place of worship to the one who keeps his promises. See, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, I've walked for a while and I can remember in some of my struggles, I spent a lot of time doing this. You know what I'm doing? I'm navel-gazing. When them hard times came, I would go, woe is me. And I'd be looking down at my navel. And the longer I looked down at my navel, the more difficult the problems became. The higher the anxiety levels raised and the concerns in my heart grew darker and darker. But let me tell you something. One day a smart man got a hold of me and said, son, you need to move your eyes. You need to shift your eyes to the hills. Because hmm. it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, what I just gave you was a picture of anxiety on one hand and anticipation on the other. The hills held terrors, but they also held the house of the Lord. Help is the word exer, exer. The psalmist is asking this question. Who and where is the one who will keep me from stumbling in life's journey? Verse 3, who will overshadow me? Verse 5, and be by my side. Verse, verse uh, 7, who will keep me from evil? Who will never leave me or forsake me? That's what he's asking here. And in verse 2, he answers this question, and he takes a giant leap, church, listen, from the hills to the one who made them. See, it's not really the hills, it's the one who made them. From the one who made the hills to the one who made the universe. This is an argument, church, all through Scripture, from the smaller to the greater. We see it in the New Testament. Paul uses it brilliantly in Romans. From the greater, from the smaller to the greater. The Creator God of Genesis 1 and 2 in his, is His power source, His help in times of trouble, His help in difficulty. The One who made heaven, Yahweh God, who made earth. He made you. He made me. He cares. Brothers and sisters, this God spoke and things happened. This God shaped dust and breathed life into that dust and you and I came into being. This God took the children from Israel out of Egypt across a sea to the other side and nobody in the troop passed away. This God made the hills. He shaped them. He knows every molecule. Golly. You know, it almost sounds like omnipotence. <laughs> Yahweh is great in power, omnipresent in presence, omniscient in knowledge. God is great, God is powerful, God is powerful, and God is personal. I mean, church, we see it in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it went on to say that he took the form of man. And he walked on this earth. Colossians talked about Jesus being the exact image of God, not a photocopy. The image of God by whom all things were created and for whom all things belong. What an incredible picture we have. They didn't have that church. All they had was Psalm 21 and the ones that followed. But look what we've got. Look what God's given us. These verses reveal His great and awesome Creator. And it's also this great and awesome Redeemer, Jesus. King Jesus. 
Listen, there indeed is a higher throne. This indeed is King Jesus' world. And there sits the lion and the lamb. Now listen, church, I'm going to step into the 21st century. I love, I love the reminder that Big Daddy Weave gives us. You know Big Daddy Weave? He gives us a worship song. It's called The Lion and the Lamb. Listen to the words. Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He is roaring with power and fighting your battles and every knee will bow before you. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. That's a powerful God. Listen, church, I got I to tell you, let me see if I can illustrate this a different way. Have you ever seen pictures of the Grand Canyon? How many people have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Oh, man, listen. When I visited my son soon after the birth of, 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 of Logan in Yuma, we went to see the Grand Canyon in person. He took me. Let me say something. When I, when I stood at the edge of the canyon and I looked, Words could never convey the beauty, the enormity, and the creation of God's wonder. And i got to tell you, I'm going to tell a tale on my sister. I heard tell that one of my sisters went to see the ocean for the very first time. Very first time. Now, I took it for granted because, you know, I lived on the ocean. I was in Key West. You know, we would go to school, and kids, we'd walk to the beach after school. That's where we spent our afternoons, the beach. But my sister had never seen the ocean for real. I mean, for real, for real. And she said she walked out onto the beach and the only thing that she could do was cry. You see, pictures and words could never have conveyed what she felt and saw and what I felt and what I saw. Listen, brothers and sisters, many times we read of God's splendor. We read of God's grace. We read of God's mercy and power. But very seldom do we stand in awe of God. Come on now. If, just if, we could stand in awe of God, we would not fear anything in our lives. See, we start to fear when we put God in the same intellectual capacity as us. How will God protect me when I'm this far in the hole? How will God protect me if I am this sick? How will God protect me? My life is falling apart. How can God fill in the blank? Listen, beloved. If you are not in awe of God, we will start to make God think like us instead of letting God be God. His power is before us. Our Lord's providence is with us. In verses 3 and 4, he says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who, who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I want you to notice something. There's a very subtle change, but a big change there. There's a change from the first to the third person as this psalmist dialogues within his soul. What you've got going on here is what Michael was talking about, this healthy soul talk. See, he had this first person stuff going on in the very beginning in the first two verses and now it shifts it shifts into third person and if you look at this there are four negatives that appear and all those negatives are are crucial to the argument of these verses you know you got these negatives will not let your foot be moved uh, will not slumber okay you got these four negatives and the God who guards his chosen people, Israel, listen to me, is the same God who now guards you and me on a personal day-by-day -day basis. Our God will not allow your foot to be moved. That word moved here, it, it means slip, slide, stagger, be shaken. Church, you've got to understand something. This God has a moment-by-moment -moment watch care over you. 
every single day. Now, Brother John, you're going to say, Brother John, now, come on now. Things happen. Yes, things happen. But this God is bigger than those things that happen. Oh, my goodness, I tell you, I, I don't know. I, 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 I get excited. You know, we want to look back at tradition, and I think one of the traditions I enjoy when I talk about this, because what we're talking about here, for me, is God's providence over us, right? God's rule over us. It's not like God got, He's surprised by anything. Uh, the Westminster Catechism, I like what it says here, and I'm going to quote it to you. It says this, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his, listen, his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable unchanging counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. You know what that tells me? It's not about me. <laughs> it's about God. It's about that God who keeps us. And you know, you, you go on here, and, and it talks about this, this slumber and this sleep. There's something to this, because in, in, in history... There's so, funny, so many different historical perspectives of the gods. And one of them is that the gods sleep and they need their rest. You know, in mythology, there's a story about something that was going on on earth and the, and the gods were resting and they got upset with the people on earth because things were going on. And so the God, this is a myth, mythological, but the God was sleeping. Listen to me, church. Not Jesus, not Jehovah. Jehovah never sleep. Matter of fact, he says here two times, he does not slumber. He doesn't doze off. He does not get tired. He does not take naps. He does not sleep. He does not eat. He doesn't have need for anything else. Not Jehovah. Psalm 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Listen to this, church. 24-7. I added that. 24-7. And His ears, listen, are open to their cry. Now, let's see if I can throw an illustration in here, because the only one I can think of is Elijah. You remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? Huh? 1 Kings 18. Listen, God never sleeps nor slumbers. Look at verse 3 and 4. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he watches over Israel will not slumber or sleep. Now, this is in contrast, church, to the pagan gods that we meet in Scriptures. In 1 Kings 18, we read about the prophets of Baal trying to reach their God. And when Baal doesn't respond, Elijah starts talking smack. I mean, hey, hey, you guys, shout louder. Shout louder. Surely he is a God. And when Baal didn't respond, Elijah kept going. He said, well, you know, perhaps he's deep in thought. <laughs> maybe he's too busy. Or maybe he went on a vacation. Or, you know, maybe he's sleeping and he must be awakened. You know, the implication here is that if your God is sleeping when you need him, then you don't have much of a God, do you? But our God is always awake. He never falls asleep on the watch. You know, I think about Genesis. You know, the scripture that says on the seventh day God rested. You remember that one? Let me tell you something. Here's a little insight for you. God may have rested from his creative work, but he never stopped sustaining all he created. Did you hear what it said? God might have rested from his creative work, but God never stopped sustaining from all he created because God had stopped sustaining all he created. All he created would have flown apart. So yeah, he rested, but he still sustained. He held it together. He never dozes. He never nods. He never gets distracted. Beloved, you can pray to Him at any time and He always focuses on you and He hears you. His providence is with us. Our Lord's presence, though, church, is beside us. Look at Psalms uh, 
5 and 6, verses 5 and 6. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. In 6 and in 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. These two verses begin with two very potent poetic promises that unfold like a series of stairs with each additional step providing a further word of promise and assurance. I like what Warren Wiersbe says here. He says, our keeper is on the throne looking down on us, but he is at our side to shield us from all harm. You know, it's what theologians like to call what eminent. He is eminent, but he is also transcendent. See, our God is so big that our God puts a shade over all of his creation. But he is so personal that he is eminent beside you every second of the day. And this idea of shade here, it, it speaks of his, of his protective presence. He overshadows you and me with his care. And this, it's, it's at your right hand, it speaks about his personal presence Listen, church, I don't know about you, but I wake up and he's there. I lay down and he's there. And all through the day and all through the night, church, he's there. This idea of the sun and the moon, there's, there's, there's danger here. There are dangers that come by the day and, and, and there are dangers that come in night. And, and the idea here too is this idea of the right hand. You know, a soldier when he was walking carried his shield in his left hand which left his right side bare. And he always, what he looked for and what was the good thing is if you were marching in line, you had a friend next to you. And that friend next to you would shade your right hand. There's our God. He calls you in the battle but he stands at your right hand to give you shade. And he shades over everything in our lives, church. He's right here beside me. He promises never to leave me or forsake me. Listen, church, I am promised, you are promised his presence day to day, month to month, year to year. No, you know, it's minute by, no. Listen to me, church, it's second by second. That's our God. Psalm 91, 1 and 2 reminds us, and I love this verse, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I would trust. You got troubles today? You got worries today? You have anxiety today? God is right by your side. And you say, how do you bring Jesus into this? <laughs> he is there. What did he say? Hey, come to me, all you are weary, and I'll give you rest. Hey, I'm not going to leave you. I'll never forsake you. Listen, I'm right there with you, second by second. I don't know, let me see if I can illustrate this out a little bit. When I was a young man, I was my little sister's bodyguard. You're going to learn a little bit something about me you didn't know. You see, I was a, I was a junior Olympic weightlifter. I was just starting a, a boxing career, actually a professional boxing career. And I was a football recruit by 15 colleges, including the Florida Gators. Go Gators. Now, my father... You've heard my stories about my dad. My dad loved all of us, and he was tough. My father would let my sister go to Fort Lauderdale Beach as long as I was nearby. And listen, I know that I'm, I'm her brother, and I'm kind of partial, but my sister was a beautiful young woman. She really was. All the guys on the beach knew that you didn't mess with my little sister. You just didn't mess with my little sister because like I was always present even if she was on the beach and I was on the racquetball court. But see, I also have a little brother and my little brother was actually more famous than I was. See, my little brother was a little crazy. See, my little brother was about five foot ten and he went 425 pounds and he rode a big black Harley chopper. And my brother 
was strong as an ox. And my brother had done some crazy things. And so as much as I like to think that my presence was what prevented my sister from getting in problems, I really think it was my crazy brother who was never there, but they knew him. His presence is beside us. And the last part of this tapestry is my Lord's protection is around me. You know, to be kept from evil, church, I'm going to be honest with you, does not imply a trouble-free life. To be kept from evil does not apply a trouble-free life, but a well-protected life. Psalm 23, 4, check it out. See, it embraces the truth of Genesis 50, 20. It says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Listen, church, painful? Yes. Paralyzing? No. No. Not at all. I mean, think of Brother Joseph. <laughs> I mean, sold into slavery, sent down to Egypt, got into the king's good graces, wife turned on him, she couldn't get what she wanted, threw him into jail. Oh, golly, I'm in jail. What happens? Well, you also throw the uh, butcher and the, the wine taster in there too, right? And oh, oh, gee whiz. Now we need somebody to interpret a dream. Oh, hey, listen, this guy down here in prison interpreted, here's God moving. His protection was around Joseph. And even at the end, he said to his brothers, hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So as you read through the amazing promises of the Psalms, do you ever have doubts, though? Come on now, be honest. Somebody say, uh-huh. I mean, doubts spring up. The psalm seems to be saying that if you trust God, nothing bad will happen to you. And your life will go smoothly, even to the point that you will not stub your toe. And the opposite seems to be implied as well. If things aren't going well, you must not be trusting God. And this is a truffling conclusion, isn't it? I mean, it almost sounds like karma. You know what I mean by karma? I mean, if I'm suffering, it must be my own fault. Kind of karma. But listen, the plot thickens. You see Satan, you see, quote, Psalm 91 during the temptation to try to steal and uh, to try to derail Jesus. Do you remember that? He says, Jesus, if you trust God, he will protect you. Don't the Psalm say he will not even allow you to stub your toe? So surely you can throw yourself off this cliff with no worries. And listen, if God does not do that, he's not keeping his word. Here's a good Bible interpretation rule of thumb for you. I'm going to give it to you for free. If you come to the same conclusion Satan does, you're probably not reading it right. <laughs> so if we shouldn't be reading Psalms like Satan, how should we expect the fulfillment of this protection in our lives. And I'm coming to the end. I'm running as quick as I can. I really want to share that because Michael insisted that we talk about the fact that things happen. So here's four points, practical things I want to talk about real quick for you. We experience the fulfillment of his word and how God uses pain to grow us in our knowledge of, his, of himself. I don't like that one, John. Now listen, in John 17, Jesus declared that the essence of eternal life is what? Knowing God. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God and Christ Jesus whom you, whom you have sent. That's my life verse, by the way. I love that verse. That's my verse. That means that in the bigger picture, church, any harm that comes to you or me that increases our relationship with God is not really harm but help. Oh, I don't like that, John. The psalmist alludes to the same idea in Psalm 94, verse 15. He says, I will be with him in trouble. There's a clue in the psalm that godly people are sometimes going to experience trouble. And he's anticipating that the promise of protection for many of us may not always be literal and physical, at least initially. And when God says in that same psalm in verse 16, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation, he's not talking simply about adding pain-free years to our lives. 
He's talking about adding despair-free life to your years. Oh, did you catch that? One more time. I think, I think it's just it's good. He's not talking about simply adding pain-free years to our lives. He's talking about adding despair-free life to our years. There's a difference there. We experience the fulfillment of His Word and God's promise to us, all things for good in our lives. You know, Bible passages should never be interpreted in isolation, right? I didn't do this one in isolation. This is how a lot of false doctrine gets started. It's what Satan tried to do in Psalm 91 with Jesus. Whether willfully or ignorantly, he interpreted it without knowledge of the rest of the Scriptures. Now, verses like Romans 8.28 show you how promises in, in Psalm 91 are true. While it promises that God is working all things together for good, work together for good does not mean that bad things are really good things in disguise. Amen? It means that God takes genuinely bad things and brings His power to bear in them so that you and I will be better off. Amen? That is, we'll be more Christ-like for them having happened. In Romans 8.29, And we know that all things work for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28, What then shall we say in response to this? Mine, here's a cheer. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31, No. In all things, church, listen, we need to talk to ourselves. In all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Through Him who loved us. Romans 8.31 38 For I am convinced, listen to Him, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, church, from the vantage point of eternity, we will be able to see how God exercised His power in such a perfect way that all the evil that happened will in the end only lead to greater glory for God and greater joy for us. We will see that. See, that's the ultimate, listen, that's the ultimate defeat of evil. Praise God that all evil deeds ultimately accomplish the reverse of what the authors intended. See, we see most clearly, of course, in the cross, where Satan and the powers of evil did their worst, and God turned even that into our salvation. Believer, listen to me, you can rest assured, God is doing the same thing. Thing with your pain. We experience the fulfillment of His Word in the resurrection. Listen, as Christians, we recognize that this life is really just a prelude to the eternal one. You know, Brother Jesse talked about that earlier. A life in which He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. There won't be any crying. There won't be any pain. Oh, praise the Lord. For the former things have passed away. We're going to, to a place where the worst pain we go through now will seem like brief birth pain swallowed up in the joy of new birth. Psalm 121, church, is ultimately literally fulfilled in that resurrection we look forward to where there are no stubbed toes and no death by pestilence. The imagery of God protecting us under His wings like some kind of mother hen shows us how committed God is to protecting us from all harm. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He shielded us so that the harmful elements would not ultimately destroy us. And that guarantees us that he's working all things together for good. And that ultimately this whole story 
is going to end up for us in a glorious resurrection just like his. Listen, Jesus' resurrection is the promise of what is to come for us. It's a resurrection in which every phase of Psalm 121 is, will be literally true. And the promise is supposed to redefine how we see everything here on earth. Do you have a problem today? Lift your eyes. Go beyond the hills to the maker of the hills. Lastly, we experience the fulfillment of his word in moments of deliverance. You know, it's true that our primary and ultimate fulfillment is experience in those three points that I talked about. But don't overlook the fact, church, that God sometimes gives us signs of deliverance in our day-to-day lives. You know, I, can't, I remember a few weeks ago, I read something by one of our sisters in Facebook who was excited about seeing God's deliverance. One of my favorite books, church, is called The Shadow of the Almighty. How many of you have read that? I recommend it to you. It's the journals of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott is one of the five young missionaries who was slain on the beaches in Ecuador in the 1950s. And it was published by his wife, Elizabeth Elliott. Anybody heard of Elizabeth Elliott? Many years later. And the title of that book comes from Psalm 91. And the title is ironic when you think about the fact that Jim was literally pierced through the heart with a spear and killed. Something Psalm 91 promises won't happen. But Elizabeth Elliot called her book Shadow of the Almighty Church because she was utterly convinced that the refuge of the people of God is not a refuge from suffering and death, but a refuge through it and a refuge from final and ultimate defeat. That's faith. In the book, she quotes Jim as saying, I am immortal until my work on earth is done. Mm. Mm. You know, sometimes I think I'm a, a soldier of the faith, but man, when I hear quotes like that, I realize, oh God, I've got a way to go. I'm immortal until my work on earth is done. And listen, the same is true for us. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. There may be some painful chapters along the way, but if you hold on, you'll see that God was working it all together for good, just like He said. God's protection, church, is around us. It's His glory, church, not our comfort. As I end, I bring to mind David Livingstone. He's a great missionary to Africa. He read Psalm 121 and Psalm 135 in worship before he left for Africa in 1840. And how appropriate for all of us who rightly see ourselves as pilgrims in the world that this is not our home. I I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? This makes sense, church, in light of the great redemptive storyline of the Bible, doesn't it? I left my eyes to the hill. You know, after all, it was from a hill and beyond that our salvation came. You realize that, right? A hill called Golgotha. Let me say something, church. Evidently, God likes high places. I'm about to get excited. I mean, evidently, God likes high places. Church, think of high Mount Moriah, where God provides a ram for Abraham. Sparing his only son Isaac in Genesis 22. It's a preview of our God not sparing his son as he paid the full price and the penalty of our sins. Oh, but he's not done. Think of Moses coming down from the mountainside. The hills with God's law. The very expression of God's character and nation. A law now written, church, on our hearts. Mm, mm. Think about Jesus on the mount, on the hillside, delivering the greatest sermon ever preached in Matthew 5 through 7. Think of 
our Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Transfigured with the Father declaring from heaven, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Oh, think of Jesus on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24, painting the prophetic portrait of the end times. Think of our Savior on Calvary's hill, bearing the full measure of God's wrath for sinners like you and me. Think of our Lord's great commission delivered to His church on what Matthew calls the mountain which Jesus had appointed them. High places. Think of our Lord on the Mount of Olives ascending back to heaven but leaving us a promise. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw Him going up. Cast your eyes up, church. And finally, join the Apostle John on Patmos for the glorious Revelation vision. Join him at the end of the book where in 21, 10, 11 we read this. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Brothers and sisters, we're on a journey to God, beloved. We're on a journey to God. Psalm 21 is a wonderful travel mix for the journey. The maker of heaven and earth watches over every aspect of your life. He protects you from all harm. There are no accidents for those who belong to God. And that means you do not need to worry or be afraid of anything. Let me tell you something, church, a lot of times we worry about things that we can't change anyway. Nothing can happen to you without God's knowledge. Do you believe that? Nothing can harm you under His protective care. Do you believe that? Even in the worst things that happen to you, whether illness, death, all of these things take place under God's providential care, church. You know, we sing it here so often, God is for you, not against you. Listen, church, God is committed to His glory and your good, and you can trust Him in all things. Chris sang with the choir earlier, with the, with the group earlier, through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon His Word. Beloved, take comfort in this. Learn to trust God in all things and to look for the good in all the details of your life. God cares for you. He will provide for you. He is there to help you. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from, church? My help today, still until the end of my life, comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Listen, new breed, this is the God who is our help. Why should you look anywhere else? Father God, I come before you and I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for this psalm that just really pressed upon my heart, Father. I know, Lord God, that, you know, maybe it hadn't affected everybody, everyone that would affected me this week, but more, Lord God, just, just seeing you and, and, and seeing you work, Lord. Oh, God, the vision of your holiness. Lord, standing in awe in front of you. And realizing that I cannot stand, I must bow. Because you are high and I'm low. But yet, you come down low to lift me high. Oh, Father, help us, Lord, to add this to our travel mix. As we go through this day to day life, Father, realizing that this is not our home. That you have a promise for us. A better place. And Father, 
an eternal life where we will spend day in and day out singing praises to our God. Father God, be pleased with us. Holy Spirit, take the words and apply it to our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that seek after you, Father. Bless your people, God, and make them more like Jesus. For his sake, amen.